Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. It's been a whole career in one year for my first guest, but as I said, the highs have comfortably outweighed the lows. Westover is staying on well in a pink cap, then Hu Yamao, and it's Desert Crown that comes sweeping through to take it up. Oh, and it's all over, surely. Desert Crown has kicked right away. Could you have done anything different? Absolutely, it's a tough track. You can get hard luck stories. Tight second, Westover running on well. Really sadly for you, Robbie, you won't be partnering Westover in this weekend's Irish derby. Deeply disappointing for myself, um, but I mean, you know, to, to be able to have that opportunity in the first place to, to have a ride in in the derby, uh, you know, on, on such an exciting horse that we have a lot of belief in was, um, you know, a huge honour. It's Westover running up towards the finish. Westover is a triumph. Prosperous Void now got the better in spiral on the run towards the line. It's Prosperous Void is out in front under Rob Hornby. How will win the Falmer State? Rob Hornby rises, Group 1 winner for Rafe Beckett this season, having missed out on Westover in the Irish Derby. He recently lost his Group 1 winner from last season's scope. This will very much put a smile on his face. Alcohol free, who's just edging left under pressure, chased them by creative force. Behind these is Emirati and a double or bubble. Perfect power can't get into it. Alcohol free leading on the far side of Mabel Crown as they race up towards the line. It's the Philly alcohol free for Rob Hornby and alcohol free. Rob Hornby, second group one of the week. Rob Hornby's season has turned on a sixpence. Two group ones in 24 hours. To go and win two group ones in two days is, is just crazy, yeah. <laughs> What a year it has been for my guest, Rob Hornby. Um, great to have you with us, Rob. Just looking back there, it's amazing to see all those highs and lows crammed into such a short space of time. Could you possibly have imagined anything like that at the beginning of the year? No, Nick, thanks for having me. Not um, at all. Not at all, really. Like from, you know, what happened in such a short period of time has been, um, has been crazy, really. A, a real um, roller coaster of a ride and... Um, you know, to it's all part of the sport, isn't it? And um, well, we all love it so much, but it has been a, a crazy year. And just the, those opening shots there, I said, slightly torturing you with the with the Westover pictures from the from the Derby. Do you do you give that day much thought as the season has progressed? Do you keep thinking about what might have been, or or, or do you just have to get it out of your head? Uh, I'd say I'm quite lucky with being able to, you know, look at things, digest it. Mm. Um, work out what, what you might have wanted to change if you could have changed anything and then moving forwards which is most important and um, 
you know I'd, I'd like to think I'm, I'm quite I'm quite lucky and you know I realise that you, you've got to move forwards and I, I actually haven't watched the replay that many times because it, you just torture yourself and you know watching it there then it's it's difficult to watch um, but it's um, just one of those things. Would you have done anything different? I don't think so. No, is the answer. Um, you know, just on the day, my horse, you know, Westover wasn't quick enough to go through the gap that was in front of me. And um, we all know that um, Epson's a very unique track and you need the right horse to, to be able to handle the undulations and the, the hill and, and um, um, yeah, just on, on the day, you know, it, it didn't work out for him. And the winner was, was very impressive as well, wasn't he? Almost, almost gearing down. So I guess at least you can console yourself in the fact that nobody was saying, oh, my word, you should have won the race. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, the winner on the day had a textbook Epsom ride almost, you know, mid midfield, one off the rail with an option to, to have space when you wanted it. And, um, you know, beautifully running by Richard Kingscote. And, um, you know, the, the cards that I always dealt is I was on the rail. And when you are on the rail um, at Epson in, in, in such a, a, a tough race um, on a horse that not necessarily has an instant turn of foot, but has a great deal of stamina. Um, you know, it was always going to be something that ha it was going to be difficult to to um, overcome. And um, I mean, you know, he he, he ran a heroic race, and um, and is obviously a you know a hugely talented horse. The the story wound on from Westover because you lost the ride, the Irish Derby. He went on to win the Irish Derby under Colin Keane very impressively. It it wasn't so happy a story in the King George, but Rafe Beckett, your boss or one of your bosses said to me yesterday the horse is in fantastic form and he seemed very happy going into next weekend he's also let us know for the last two or three weeks that it it wasn't definitive who would ride the horse next next Sunday in the arc so do you know whether you're going to ride him or not or is, is Colin King going to ride him yeah so um it was confirmed yesterday evening that I'll, I'm going to ride him in the arc which is hugely exciting you know for myself um, and just really looking forward to, to getting back on him he's in great form I've ridden him in his last four pieces of work um, and he seems good he's done well from that break because um, he had quite a busy you know he was lightly raced at two and then had quite a busy three-year-old campaign obviously gearing up for the derby mm -hmm. um, you know winning his trial at Sandown on his on his first start as a, as a three-year-old was you know big performance and you know he, he wasn't cherry ripe on the day so so he was still you know developing as a three-year-old colt and um, you know he ran he's he's a very generous horse and he gives you everything you know which is what's so nice about him and so nice to ride um, and he put a lot into his Epsom run and Epsom is what it is, you know, a long way to the start, a lot going on, it takes a lot out of a horse, and, um, and then a trip to Ireland, who, you know, he, he was explosive and, you know, destroyed the field, 
but again put a lot into his run you know he hit, he hits the line strong in every race he runs in um you know ascot was tough tough for him um again he put everything into his run but it, but he's an exuberant horse and ascot mile and a half is a, is a tough you know it's a tough start and it's a, a tough track for a horse like him it's a downhill two and a half furlongs into the bend in a relatively small field so yeah. no he's 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 done really well from the break um which i think was the right thing to do for the horse and um target him for for, for paris but clearly we know what the news line is going to be rob hornby is back on on westover how how satisfying does that feel yeah it's hugely satisfying for myself you know it's been it's, it's another chapter to what's <laughs> been a crazy year kind of um you know, and, and another opportunity that I've been given, you know, kindly by um, by Jubman and Barry Martin, Simon Mockridge, and, and the whole team, and and Rafe to to have, you know, the belief and, and faith that um, he he wants me to ride ride him. And the nice thing for us about talking to to Rafe Beckett is that he's he's a pretty open book. He doesn't he doesn't hide his feelings, and it's been quite obvious that that he's really been been singing your praises one, and also been been backing you as the right person to, 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 to ride this horse. Do you feel that's because of this horse's, not idiosyncrasies, but his characteristics in particular, they need a bit of knowing? Yeah, I think so. Um, like I say, he's a generous horse and he gives you everything. And, um, you know, I probably know him as well as anyone. There's, there's, a, there's a, a few people that ride him at home. Cardoso would be his, his main rider at home who um, knows him just as well as as I probably do and um you know I think it's 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 important for for a horse like him who is um who is who is um obviously very talented and and um and good but just does take a bit of known not taking anything away like Colin Keane did a fantastic job in Ireland and and did nothing you know no one's done anything wrong it's just um you know, I just look at it as, as again, a, a great opportunity for myself to, um, to, to be able to ride him again. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Rob Hornby is still with me. Lee Mottetet, senior writer from the Racing Post, has joined Rob. Uh, that was a, a nice way to start a Sunday, Lee, wasn't it? With bit a good news. news. A, bit of a good news story. A scoop. But a good news story. I think people will respond well to Rob getting the ride back on West Ham. I think it is a good news. Um, I actually was at Newmarket yesterday, as part of my colour piece, I was speaking to, to David Probert, uh, who obviously rode the Foxes to mm. win the Royal Lodge Stakes, but he had missed out on riding Chaldean um, at York and Doncaster because Judd Mont, perfectly fair, is that any owner should be allowed to do, preferred to use Ryan and Frankie in those big races. But I always find it disappointing when a jockey who has built up an association with a horse then loses that ride in, in big races. I thought this year's derby was particularly uh, heartening because you had um, you had Richard Kingscote beating Rob Hornby, David Probert. Those, those three jockeys were in the first three places in the derby, I thought was great for the sport because it showed how much talent there is in the weighing room. But a lot of jockeys simply don't get the chance to shine on a big stage, but they would shine brightly if they got the chances. So I thought it was disappointing when Rob lost the ride. Uh, in Ireland and Ascot. I think it's excellent he's got the right back in Longshore. And as far as the arc's concerned, if we just dwell on that for a moment, Lee, yeah. I know it's one of your favourite races. We've Love talked it. and talked and talked and talked about 
by not yeah. running in the race. But actually, if you strip away that story and look at it, it could be a, just about a maximum field. Yeah, I and mean, some really intriguing runners. It really could be a maximum field. I mean, that they 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 could be looking at um, balloting because mm. there could be so many horses trying to get into that race. I think it looks a fascinating Art de Triomphe. Yes, of course, we we all wanted to see Bayed in the race, but a bit of a narrative built up to say that this was actually a uh, a weak arc and Bayed would have faced a stiffer test in the champion stakes, even when Vedeni was heading there. I don't think that was the case. I think it's a deep arc full of interest, full of international interest as well, and I can't wait for it. Rob, if you if you weren't riding Westover, and I know we've only just sort of taken stock of the news that you are riding Westover, but who do you think is your most potent threat? Yeah, um, Smart Prescott's horse looks... looks Alpinista. Alpinista looks, um, you know, looks to be probably the biggest danger. Um, you know, quite quite um, versatile ground-wise as well and, and, you know, been campaigned for this, you know, a long time ago. So, um, obviously, it's going to be hugely competitive and, um, you know, Longchamp is, is, it, is a difficult track and um, a lot can happen in in that last kind of two furlongs of the race but um yeah Alpinista looks looks you know like could have all the right credentials uh, yes I wonder because she's she's not been beaten since finishing second I think at the Cambridge fixture two years ago uh, I wondered if she was hiding in plain sightly because she's still a pretty reasonable price she is I think in terms of her profile and reputation among British punters um, I think she she suffers because all her winning last year, all her big wins, yeah. were obviously in France and and Germany and the start of this year. So we we haven't actually seen a lot of her racing over here. Um, and her domestic Group One win here in the Yorkshire Oaks was an excellent win, but again, it's not one of the very highest profile Group One. So I think there are probably some punters over here who are yet to be properly convinced that Alpinista is the real deal, and maybe because. She doesn't always win her races with uh, raw brilliance, but but grit and determination. She maybe her profile maybe suffers for that as well. However, if you look at her on the ratings, she's banged there as a contender. She does keep winning, and people doing my job would love nothing more than Sir Mark Prescott winning the arc. It'd be a great story, albeit we might have to get the post-race quotes from Heath House because he said all along. He's not minded to go to Paris, given it's the book one of the Tattersall's Octavierling sells the following week. Yeah, once he's set his mind on something, yeah. he doesn't normally no. change it. There's any amount of great stories in this year's race. In addition to Rob being confirmed as the rider of Westover, we've also had news that Mark Zara will fly all the way from Australia to renew his association with Very Elegant if she gets into the race. Yeah, um, which wouldn't be absolutely guaranteed. I desperately hope she does, given the connections have set her their stall on this in a very bold and brave way. Nick, um, as I've said on, on your many media platforms before, I'm a huge fan of Very Elegant. I absolutely adore her. Not quite as much as I adored Winx beforehand, but I do adore Very Elegant. Um, I thought initially it was disappointing that they'd sent her to France that late in her career because the science had been in her final mm -hmm. Aussie prep in the, the most recent Aussie autumn but she wasn't quite as good as she'd been in the spring when she won the Melbourne Cup. However, I thought her run in the pre-foire uh, pre was encouraging um, and I think the Zara booking is fascinating. He is probably at this stage the fourth choice rider. They would have wanted James MacDonald to come across from Sydney but understandably we're in carnival time in Australia that would have been a big move for the mm -hmm. 
that for, for James, he has so many good horses to ride. Yeah, we had Frankie, who's Frankie, on to Quasitas. So we Sumio, had Sumio, who's on yeah. Dainey. So now Mark Zara, who is a fascinating call. He's a jockey who knows very elegant well, won the Caulfield Cup on her, then didn't give her a particularly good ride in the Melbourne Cup. So that's too much to do, and I think he would say that himself. Um, so to go for an Aussie jockey who wouldn't know the track but does know the horse is interesting. Um, I think maybe knowing a horse like Very Elegant is more important than not knowing the mm. track because she wouldn't be the most straightforward ride in the world. And anyone who knows ARC history will tell you that Aussie jockeys have got a sensational record in the race. Lots of Aussie winning jockeys, including Pat Glennon, on one of the most iconic of all ARC winners, Seabird. Wow, yeah, Seabird, the most impressive ARC winner in, in modern times. Let's talk about yesterday's racing and a horse who has been around Europe a few times and seems to be thriving on his racing. The winner of the Group 1 Middle Park Stakes. This was Blackbeard. He's not even the best juvenile in, in Aidan O'Brien's yard and O'Brien was keen to, to stress that afterwards but he, he seems to be getting better, Rob, with every run. Yeah, and one thing about the run yesterday, or the race yesterday, is it was very truly run. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a bit of a, a charge on with the, with the leading three and um, Persian Force did, did really well to finish finish um, third. Um, the one also to take out, which looks to be really piecing it together, is Tom's um, Aidan's second horse at Tom Road. At the Antarctic. Who looks to 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 be hitting the rising ground really really strongly, and and one that I think Aidan said on the day as well that is still working out. You know, the racing game, and and is mm. looks to have. A lot of improvement there still to come. And he's a brother to Batash, so he's quite a, he's kind of an important prospect for for, for Ballydoyle and Coolmore as well. I, I thought Aiden was was very interesting uh, after the race. Um, uh, this is what he had to say to me. He's very progressive. Always has been uh, from day one, Nick. Uh, from the time he raced, he's, he's fast horse. Um, he often has to make his own running because they don't go quick enough for him. But uh, it was lovely today that there was a nice pace on, and, and Ryan could sit him in. Uh, he was very happy with him. Uh, always in his work, he quickens very well at home from behind. Um, but obviously, we probably haven't seen that at the races uh, many times because the pace hasn't been strong enough with him. But we saw it today, and, and that's what he does in his work all the time, really. Given the sort of character that he obviously is, do you have to work him quite hard? Does he take lots of work? He takes a lot of work. Uh, he, no, easy. He takes his work easy. Yeah. Uh, Stephen rides him, but we obviously, when he's driving like the way he does, we, we don't uh, pull back with him. Uh, but he's very relaxed horse. He, he, he's uh, clear-winded, so it's not, he, he doesn't need work for that, but uh, he never uh, backs away from work, and he's always able for whatever you do with him, really. That's what I mean. He looks like a horse with a sort of almost sort of voracious appetite for doing things. Very active. You see all his antics beforehand and whatnot. Yeah, that's the kind of personality he has. Like he's he, he's active and wants to be forward going and doesn't like waiting around. And that's the way he is. And if he was a human being, he'd be saying, "Listen, just let me add." Let, that's the way he is with everything, really. Is he is he a challenge for you, for your team? Because obviously he's travelled to France a couple of times. He's come here a couple of times. He's gone. He's done an awful lot. He's crammed an awful lot into a short life, hasn't he? He has. Yeah, the lads do a great job. And Stephen rides him every day. Finbar. Uh, um, yeah, Samita. Everyone who's in charge of him and looks after him. Um, uh, no, he's he's um, past uh, travels and he's, he's straightforward. But like I say, uh, Nick, he doesn't like waiting around, and you kind of have to keep going with him, you know. Well, it's a bit like you. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, uh, no, he's just, uh, just on the go all the yeah, time. Yeah, well, listen, he's, he likes going forward anyway. <laughs> uh, just in question of, of what his future is now. When you see him hit the line that hard in a race quite strongly run, does it make you think differently about? How far he can go? Yes, uh, yeah. We always thought he was very fast. Um, he, he, 
like we always thought five six was his trip. We weren't sure how far more he would get, and obviously we've never asked him to go far. Um, but today he was getting a well, but he was more waiting than anything. But I think speed is his thing, Nick, and he's, he was always fast and precocious, you know. So I wouldn't be sure how much far, further yeah. he'd go than six, but you never know. Do you want to take him to America? Uh, listen, it's a definite possibility for him, but he has done plenty, and I suppose take him home from today and reassess him and then see what everyone feels. That's what we always do. Yeah, that's Aidan O'Brien. And uh, this is a horse who, who has his own way of doing things, and, but it, he's, he's very talented. But the, the elephant in the room was Little, little Big Bear, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, he wasn't there, and they think he's much better. Yeah, they do think he's much better. They're quite open in, in, in saying that they think he's much better. And based on what he did in the Phoenix Stakes, he is much better. Um, but we won't see him until next season. I don't think we'll see Blackbeard until next season. You put up that question to him about America... Um, when he was speaking separately to the press, he did seem to give the strong impression that he thought the horse had probably mm. done enough. And he'll have other this. horses to run in those races. He if will. He to. And he also sees his horse as a sprinter. Um, unusually, well, perhaps not unusually, but, but notably for, for this date, Newmarket, the Cheveley Park and the Middle Park were both won by horses who aren't yeah. going to be Guinness contenders. They're both sprinters. They are. Lazoo, I think, is going to go to America if, um, if Rafe Beckett is to be believed. Now, this is a filly you obviously know very well, Rob, from home, but not necessarily on the race course. And you rode the stable companion, Juliet Sierra, in the race. Were you, were you taken by Lazoo yesterday? Were you surprised by how, how well she won? Um, she's obviously had a, you know, a fantastic um, start to her career, really. She's, she's been highly tried and um, achieved a great deal since, since her breaking her maiden at, at Bath and, and progressed um, you know, really well throughout every run she's had and every, every, um, every question that she's asked, she, she's kind of answered and she, she's, she's not overly flash at home. Um, not a horse that I've ridden in public, but I know her from home, and you know she, she, she's she's nothing flashy. She just gets on with her work, but she's um, you know I think Juliet Sierra is probably a different yeah, type I, of horse. I was just looking at that again. I hadn't noticed how well your filly, the Judmont <coughs> filly, had run. Yeah, she stayed on really nicely up yeah. the hill, and she got quite quite lost at this crucial stage here. Um, just have a look, the pink cat, the big white face. You know, she's still just galloping up in the air a little bit, and I had to get her organised. But yeah, once she did hit the rising ground, she. Um, you know, she galloped right out after the line across the wood chip, which is always nice to see. And um, yeah, probably a, a slightly different type to Lazoo as um, in terms of she, she'll. I think she will definitely stay in my next year. Could she be your guineas for next year then? Um, like, I, th I think she she will be aimed for that. Um, I don't know about my guineas, Philly, but... Um, <laughs> You're not taking anything for granted, are you? We just take this one step at a time. Absolutely, yeah. Rafe did reference in his quotes after race that Lazoo is probably not a guineas filly, but he straight away said the filly who finished fifth could be a guineas filly ah, and okay. will stay a mile. OK, OK. Well, she's very much one to keep an eye on. I did, I did put it to Rafe in the interview afterwards that Lazoo had, had taken another step forward and a pretty significant one at that. I was surprised to see her travelling quite so well, three down, you know, and, and just in her own space, rolling along. Um, it was a terrific effort, really, because, you know, she went off the, she went off the boil after the uh, Princess Margaret, and we had to sort of... Hardly surprising, when you run four, Philly like her four times in a month or five weeks, as she had, you know, you, there's going to be a payback somewhere along the line, as, as, as you know, and, 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 and that, was, that was ours. And in a way, it sort of worked for us, because she's a very laid-back, straightforward filly. 
he didn't did one easy bit of work with her last week one you know and uh, and that was solo and she just put, puts it all together for herself really yeah. i know you're a very good strategist but it almost sounds to me as though you're a little bit surprised by some of today yeah i was surprised to see her you know i was hopeful but she sort of changed color when she went off as well and I, I, you know, I, I wasn't convinced she was still at the top of her game. So this is great. It's great. Really terrific. Well bought. Two men who are having an amazing year. Unbelievable. These are the owners, Mark Chan yeah. and, and, and Andrew Rosen. Yeah. Mark Sarmich is just reminding me of a story. As we were walking out the paddock before the 1,000 guineas, they both owned Prosperous Voyage. Somebody said to Andrew, uh, good luck, Andrew. He said, we don't need luck, we've got Mark Chan. <laughs> really, Mark has been, uh, you know, it's been an extraordinary couple of years, really. And, you know, Kin Ross is another yeah. horse that the Mark owns, and he'll have his group one day at some point as well. And Andrew doesn't think it's you that's bringing him luck, man. <laughs> well, I mean, they're well, doing all right, these horses, to be fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's just been, it's been a terrific year. So um, I'm sorry Andrew isn't here. He's over next weekend, so... Does does, that, does the year have to be over for, for Lazoo now? No, it doesn't. You know, you asked before, just now, whether we'd go again. And I, you certainly think about the Breeders' Cup for it. Just going going long, that. going the mile? No, I, would, I mean, I would probably drop back, probably. And do the five and a half furlong race. Yeah. I don't think she'll get the mile. But, you know, we'll think about that. And, and that will be down to well-being, I suspect, yeah. Rafe Beckett talking yesterday after Lazoo was victorious in the Group 1 Cheveley Park Stakes. And keep an eye on Juliet Sierra, who was ridden by my studio guest Rob Hornby. And if you've only just joined us, it's been confirmed this morning that Rob will be riding Westover in the Judnon Silks in next week's Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. You rode in the Cambridgeshire as well, Rob. You were riding Jimi Hendrix. It was an extraordinary win for Aidan Keeley, his 26th winner, I think it was. Um, massive moment for him. Oh, brilliant. Um, Aidan seems a really nice lad, obviously. Don't know him particularly well, but he's he's, he's quiet. Just gets on with his his work, and actually, the winner I rode last time at um, majestic, yeah, yeah majestic at uh, at Newbury. Safe to say, I didn't say win it next week. It'll win the Cambridge, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but no, I, I think it was his first ride at Newmarket Aidens. So um, yeah, fantastic. You know, these winners in 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 big handicaps. Obviously, it's an opportunity for apprentices to to get. Um, rides in them, and, and it's very important at this stage of, you know, his, his young career to um, to begin ITV, um, you know, time and and to, to, to be getting opportunities and, and showing showing off his talent basically. And I did just that one side on shot, you saw just how well he was going the orange cap, and you know, as so often in this race, you can get a little bit lost in the in the dip, can't you? But he stormed home. Yeah, and it was quite a rough race, really. There was most of the traffic came stand side, um, which is where I was, and um, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy wasn't it wasn't his day um, yesterday, but um, yeah, it, it, it was rough. So it was all about keeping a, a smooth passage, and um, he certainly did that. And um, no, he's he's I'm sure he'll have a you know he's he's, he's small and he's probably got no weight issues, so he's. Um, He's got it all to look forward to. He has. I don't think he could quite believe what he'd done yesterday, uh, Aidan Keeley. Uh, I asked him how it felt to win a Cambridgeshire. I think. Here he is. 
it's, it's hard to put into words, but coming here and in a race like the Cambridgeshire, whatever price you are, you're sort of looking at, especially as an apprentice with um, with a few spins, you're sort of looking at it with, it's a ride in a big race like like, like itself and you you think, ah, oh, any any horse can win it, you know, it's throwing up big price winners over the years, so you sort of look at them and you go, do you know what, maybe, maybe hopefully that's me and <laughs> still waiting to wake up. <laughs> so you go into it full of belief. Yeah. When did you know you were going to get the ride? Um, not until um, two days ago on, on declarations. And I, I sort of, I was looking, I, I wasn't on anything for Saturday and I was thinking, oh, hopefully pick something up. Don't know where, I might go to Haydock or something. And then I see Newmarket and I thought, geez. And then I was like, okay, 8-2, so I'll start getting the weight down. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, look, I mean, when, if you can... So did you did you ring up for the ride? Uh, no, no. My agent, um, Nicky Adams, got me booked on it. So um, he do, he does a very good job. Um, keeps me busy all the time. So yeah. And what did he tell you about the horse? Um, uh, Nicky didn't didn't say much about the horse. He um, he, he sort of said give Mick, Mick uh, Shannon a ring. So I called up Mr. Shannon and uh, and yeah, um, he, he sort of said the horse should he travels well. Um, he ran a good race over seven the other day, um, but I think the, a mile one. He said, "I, I think a mile, you know, the mile mile one would be his trip." So, um, yeah, he look he he galloped, he galloped right through the line. So I'd say mile that 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 trip and upwards would be about right. So yeah. Right, so talk talk me through those final couple of furlongs from your perspective. When did you think? Hang on a minute. Um, so yeah, look, he was travelling well, and I sort of I walked the track with Mr. Hills before Michael Hills, uh, the jockey coach, and um, yeah, he was travelling well, and I was sort of he said sort of wait till the two and a half and and kick just before you come down the hill, so you sort of get a run into the dip, and and, and I was sort of waiting for the two and a half, and once I did kick, um, I was sort of looking looking for a couple of gaps to pop up, and it opened up really nicely for me, and and once he sort of hit the open space he then he, he then picked up and went on a stride again and, and look he's, he's done it nicely in the end so yeah we have long known that the japan cup is one of the most important staging posts in global racing and we also know that japan is not just a coming force it's a force that arrived an awful long time ago on the world stage, but it is increasingly as a racing nation dominating other festivals. I am joined, I'm delighted to say, in the Luck on Sunday studio by Dr. Kenichi Kasano, who is the Japan Racing Association's uh, London General Manager. Um, Kenichi, welcome to the show. Uh, first of all, how are you enjoying your time in, in the UK? Well, um, good morning. Um, just first of all, on behalf of Japan Racing Association, we'd like to express our condolences of the passing away of Her Majesty Queen. Yes, um, because she was a very great support of racing and also a very important person to connect UK and Japan. Mm. So, um, yes, um, we were very sad about the news, but um, we have to carry on. And I, I'm sure everybody appreciates those sentiments. And Lee, it's worth touching on what, what Kenichi says there. And we spoke about it quite a bit on, on the show last week and, and when we were talking on the podcast after Her Late Majesty's death, the extent to which that she was the... The, the, the glue that held racing nations together to, to quite an extent. Absolutely, yeah. You look all around the world, uh, Japan, Australia, America, New Zealand, um, all have races staged 
in Her Late Majesty's name. She was, as you say, a glue that held the racing world together. And we've seen, I think, just as in global politics, mm. I think in global racing, she was this unifying, revered figure, the head of state for horse racing, not just in the United Kingdom, but around the world. And uh, the Japan Cup is, is not too far away now, Kenichi, and I know it's very important to you, and it's uppermost in your mind, to I increase that international participation. Um, how are you doing that? Oh, yes, um, just, just to give you some um, basic information before, so um, the race is on 27th of November, which is on Sunday, at Tokyo Racecourse, which is the best racecourse in Japan, mm -hmm. and then the, the, the distance is ha one and a half miles on turf, and it is anti-clockwise race course. And the nomination will close on 4th of October, which is right after the arc. So um, this is the basic information of the Japan Cup. And we would love to have a lot of um, Irish and UK horses coming over to race. Uh, the last time that um, a UK-based horse won the race was, was Luca Kumani's Alcacet in, yes, in 2005. Yeah. It's, a, it's a long time ago. Why do you think it's kind of slightly been off the radar of, of European horses? Do, do we just now think that your horses are too good, we can't beat you? Well, I, I think there, there are two, two points for that. One is, yes, because we have, I think we have succeeded in improving the Japanese racing, the quality of Japanese mm. racing, and so I think it's getting more difficult for other countries or other foreign countries' horses to win the Japanese racing. And another one is I think we should, we have more to do of promoting um, Japan Cup or Japanese racing because now, besides Japan Cup, all the great horses, all the great races are open internationally. So I don't think we have done enough to promote that aspect as well. Lee, you've been to the Japan Cup. Mm. You went three years ago. I did. Just describe your experience. It is a magnificent racing experience. Um, if you if you love horse racing, it is absolutely something you should do as a fan. The intensity of the experience, particularly in terms of the enthusiasm from the local racing fans for the event, is extraordinary. The the year I was out there was the year that Sheen Murphy won on on Suave Richard. Um, I managed to tick off all those boxes that you want to see with the Japan Cup. I saw people queuing outside the race course days before the event. I saw the, the mad dash as the gates opened, as racegoers swept towards the grandstands, like the start of the Grand National, but only busier and with more drama. Um, I heard the enormous cacophony of noise that comes out of the grandstands in the three or four minutes before the race, as the racegoers really get revved up with excitement and then I saw a fantastic horse race. What I didn't see that day was international competition um, and I think that speaking to local fans they regretted that because the Japan Cup was inaugurated in 1981 as an international event and I think that the changes they've made in terms of prize money uh, and also uh, the, 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 the quarantine facilities yeah. will hope to have a really positive impact. So, Kenichi, just tell me a little bit more about the way that you're developing the race course and making it more attractive for, for international Yes, yeah, so for, like, um, for this year, we have a new facility, quarantine facility, in Tokyo race course, which is inside the course. So, literally, if the horse flies into Japan, the horse can come into the race course and they can have a quarantine, and plus the high-quality training inside the, the track, actually, they are running on the race day. So, it's, it's a new facility. So it's less stress for the horses, which makes trainers and owners easier to, um, yes, um, target Japan Cup. The, these look magnificent. Well, it, it's brand new. It's, it's um, 
Yes, totally brand new. Um, we have uh, took maybe 20 years because we've been hearing from a lot of important connections that this was one of our problems. So we did finally um, achieve that. So I hope this year we would like to have more runners coming. And in terms of your your own horses uh, and the the impact that they're having across the globe, how how proud are you of of what? what they're doing at Breeders' Cups, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, here? Well, yes, uh, I think it's very fortunate to, to, to have Japanese horses winning in um, foreign um, country races. But uh, we can also say that we have been aiming to have this result from like 20 or 30 years yeah. ago, because the fact is, if we have good horses, good, good quality horses, of course the horses will win high quality races. So what we did was that I think the Japanese owners or breeders, they tried to have good horses coming into Japan for them to breed mm -hmm. high quality horses. But what made that happen is that I think it's a business model of the Japanese racing is a, a key. So because we're lucky to control the betting, which means we can use all the money coming back into the industry so that breeders and owners can maintain their wealth to purchase another bloodline which will increase the quality of the Japanese racing. So I think that the business model plus the, the um, long-term um, um, long targeting is what have come to this kind of result. And, and the fact that there is quite heavy centralized control so that your, the JRA can, can keep can keep control of, as you say, the, the betting revenues. You can you can regulate how many horses are in training with each with each trainer. That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's quite like quite right because um, our betting um, turnover is close to twenty billion pounds. Twenty billion year, pounds per year, which per is year. which is very big. So we can control that money to split into like breeding sites or whatever, like um, more of the more of the winning purses or so something. So as long as we control the betting, we can control what's happening in the industry and we can secure what's happening in the industry. So that's the business model what we have and I think that's something very unique that it, we have. It, it must be interesting for you to watch us arguing consistently about our fixtures and funding. I mean, yes, how, how, yes. Do you view, well, how do you view well, the unwieldy Well, I, I won't say unwieldy, but I think it's, it's happening and I'm sure it will maybe come back to what you used to have, but I, I think you have to have a certain amount of money to secure the industry because there are many people working in the industry and if you don't secure the industry you won't have horses because if you just if you just increase the number of racing and maybe your um, horse numbers are decreasing it, it's, it's a mismatch mm -hmm. and so that's something that must be um, taken into account but what we can say is our business model is a good model to see that the racing is for the breeding. It's not vice versa. If you so, if you don't mistake that principle, I, I think people can get back to the right track. So, so just 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 explain what you mean by that, Kenichi. Just explain how you see the codependency of the breeding shed and the racetrack. Yeah. So so breeding is the most important part in the racing. Okay. So so racing is a stage whether that breeding was good or bad. So so. Literally, maybe the racing is making a lot of money, but if you don't feed back the money to the breeding, the pyramid of the racing industry will collapse. So we should focus what 
But the most important thing in racing industry is the breeding. So we should always take care of the breedings, otherwise that would not come back to the racing with good horses, which would not attract people all over the world. What do you think has been the most important decision in terms of breeding taken by the Japanese in the last three decades? Well, breeding, we always talk with the breeders how we can um, build up better um, a stage for the industry. So we always take into a lot of account what breeders say. So like fixtures, racing figures, race, racing um, um, grading, that's everything is linked to the breeding. So that, that will also come back to the, to the breeding as well. So like the, the numbers of um, like um, turf, turf, turf racing and dirt racing, ratio of those and things will actually affect the breeding strategy. So that's really something which is important. So um, for the racing authorities, when we when we um, design the fixtures, racing fixtures, we always take into consideration of the breeding site as well. And in, in, in terms of taking stallions from Europe and, and North America, there seems to be a focus from, from Sunday Silence onwards that you wanted horses who would stay. Yeah, so we, we basically stay on the classic distance, so that will be always the core of our racing um, strategy. So that's something that we have and why was that, do you think? Why, why was that revered so much in Japan? Well, I think it goes back to the history of um, the connection between UK racing and Japan racing. So because we value a lot of um, UK racing, so we always try to mimic what was happening in UK, and that's what we're trying to maintain. So we learnt from UK, and we're trying to give whatever what we had from UK, so it's, it's like a feedback stage for us. I don't know whether to be thrilled or, or slightly depressed by what Kanichi's saying, Lee, because Japan has looked to, to the UK as the inspiration, as the example, and that's the way Japan has built its breeding industry, yet this country has deviated so far from what it set out to do 100, 150 years ago. Yeah, I think we should be looking to Japan now, not the other way around, um, if, if honestly. I think that j the Japan racing and breeding structure just gets so many things right you Kenichi mentions there the emphasis on on stamina which is a, a joy to see the idea in Japan for example the horse could be uh, retired at, after winning a group one race or grade one race at two is just fanciful that w that would never happen the idea that a horse would have done enough at the end of a three-year-old career to retire is fanciful and also I think a great thing about Japanese racing is limiting grade one opportunities to 24 races mm. means that all those races matter. You can't duck and dive. You have to run against the best horses. That's a great thing. Well, in a moment, we'll be talking to the BHA chief executive, Julie Harrington. And I think, Kanisha, you've probably given, given some food for thought to that as well. Thank you very much. All the very best with the, the Japan Cup Thank this you. year. Thank you. And nominations close on October the 4th. So October the 4th, yes. Uh, at the beginning of next week if you like yes, 10 right after time. Arc, yes yeah and yes. Um, keeping our fingers crossed that you get good strong european representation love to love to yes especially um english horses like um we've, we've got designated bonus races in um uk so like such as um, um like uh, the the um, um, um international stakes which by mm. recently won or like um, um the um, King George, which Power Driver has won. So, um, yes, those are the de designated winners, are one of the interests that we would like to have. An £85,000 sterling guaranteed. Yes, international yes. Just, just for the um, 
um, nomination, the, the next, when, when this horse come and just finish the race, that's the money that they, they will at least um, collect from us. So you will get you will get eighty five thousand pounds as an international contender just for running yes, in, the, uh, in the in in the Japan Cup. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm involved with anything quite good <laughs> enough to, to meet the standard, Lee. However, however tempting it sounds, Kenichi, thank you very much. <laughs> thank for you. Coming and in. just add, um, it's all invitational. So all the transportation fees, travelling fees are paid from the JRA. So that's all paid as well. Yes. So you get all your transport paid, and then you get eighty-five grand just for turning up. Yep. Sounds like a no-brainer to me. Welcome back. Uh, I'm joined now by Chief Executive of the British Horse Racing Authority, Julie Harrington. Julie, good morning. Morning, Nick. How are you? Very good to talk to you. And of course, we are talking because earlier this week, British Racing's leaders, your words, agreed on the need for innovation in the racing product from 2024 and measures to begin to address competitiveness in 2023. Two days, 18 of the industry's leaders. If you were to say what the, the, the key positive was out of those two days, what would you say? The, what, the one thing you were most pleased about when you emerged from those meetings? I would say it's the fact that everybody agrees uh, we can't carry on as we are and that, that change is needed and that, um, you know, the, the BHA are the body that should be holding the pen on this. Um, and, and it's no coincidence, Nick, that the timing is now um, because and the work that we've been doing behind the scenes on the sports governance has to be in place to make this work um, because... You know, the BHA isn't a statutory regulator. People, you know, in, in my first 18 months in post, I've met so many people who say, why can't the BHA just get on um, and make these changes centrally? Um, but we're not a statutory regulator. Racing um, um, created the BHA to, to govern by consent, and our shareholders um, were the people in that room. Um, and so to get that mandate to get on, um, and make some changes. Uh, really interesting listening to Kenichi um, and you know the the fact that they're they've had a centrally led strategy for twenty to thirty years, aiming to where they are now. Um, it, it just shows we need that centrally um, led way of organising ourselves for for growth in the future. So the governance structure is being reformatted. How? Yeah. How is it going to look? How is it going to work between you and your stakeholders? So at the moment, we have something called um, the, the tripartite agreement, which yeah. is the race courses, the thoroughbred group and the BHA. Um, but any one party can stop something happening. Um, so, you know, we obviously to, to make big changes, there will be winners and losers. And so it isn't always popular. Um, and so, so the difference is that the BHA board would be the ultimate decision-making authority. Um, and of course, through um, a committee structure beneath the board, you, you listen to the voice and hear the views of you know, the, the different um, business models that exist within race courses, because they, of course, all don't have the same business model. And the broad church of our owners, you know, the major investment um, group into the sport, um, our trainers, the licensed personnel, breeders. Kenichi was talking about that, you know, the importance of the supply chain and having that long-term view. Um, 
and they will make recommendations to the board, but ultimately um, the board will make the decision. Racing's leaders agree on the need for innovation in the racing product. In what yeah. sense? How are we going to innovate? What needs to be um, addressed here? Well, you know, lots of people would say, have we got too much racing? Have we got too much racing of a particular type? The, the truth is that our product, our shop window for the racing fan um, is more complex than that. You know, we, we, we have more than one business model that exists within the sport. And um, to organise ourselves centrally about how we present, how we fund that to, to get some growth, um, so it might be that we present flat racing within the in the summer months in a, in a slightly different way than all weather racing in the winter months and, and how the, the volume that we need at each of those levels, how we fund them, how we present them um, is what we're talking about. But, but I'm, I'm interested in the word innovation, Julie. What will look and feel new to the customer of British racing? So... It, it would very much depend on, you know, the, the customer of British racing might want different things. So you're, you're talking as if that just one customer wants one thing. There, there are some people who see racing as purely um, a betting opportunity. There are some people who see it as an elite sport who want to see the best against the best. Um, and there are some people who want to, to just have a great leisure day out of the races. Any other um, product, and I, you know, I hate the word product, but you know, this is this is a sport. Um, we'll recognise that the need to segment our product and present it um, in a different way. So, so if you looked at quality jump racing, for example, um, making sure that we're presenting that when our customers want to watch it which might be slightly different than people who just want to consume it as a betting product. OK, um, Joe Somerville-Smith, your chairman, said on this show last week that one of his central areas of focus was on data and the use of data that is agreed upon by all parties in order to drive the sport forward. What do you think he, he means by that? Um, that was a key part of our, our meeting um, over um, the two days earlier this week, is you can't have a centrally driven strategy if the people at the centre can't see all the numbers. Um, and so, uh, of course, we need the, the primary investor groups into the sport are our owners um, and our betters. So, so our betters will be generating levy. Um, but they're also generating media rights, which unlike other sports where, you know, people are paying for the pictures uh, just as a means to an end, it's really wagering rights, our media rights. Um, so unless we can really understand how the finances flow, we can't make the best decision centrally. Um, and we've already started work on, on some data sharing agreements with key people at the BHA being able to have access to, to all that data. Um, and hopefully in the future, that's going to build trust as well, because if we want to grow the sport to provide better returns for owners and breeders, um, we need all of that information at our fingertips. Um, and, and over time, it should also build trust. And instead of people just arguing about an ever-decreasing 
pie. We, we all focus together on growing the pie, both domestically and importantly, globally. You know, the fact that, that, that JRA have got Kenichi and a team based in London um, just shows that uh, the focus that they put on, on global growth as well as domestic growth. Um, you talk about um, promotion of the sport. Do you think promotion of the sport has been deficient to this point? I, I think it's part of the fact that we are made up of thousands of small businesses. We've got a lot of self-employed people. We've got thousands of trainers. So we don't have that sort of centrally driven model that other um, uh, other um, jurisdictions, but also other businesses do. Um, so if you looked at the total amount that we spend on marketing, marketing the sport centrally versus the sort of tens of billions in terms of the size of industry that we are, then we underspend. Um, and, you know, addressing that and how we focus that spend, where is it better for us to act together? Because obviously trainers are trying to recruit owners and marketing to owners. The race courses are really expert at, at, at their marketing. But what we what we don't have is that sort of centrally led how do we grow the sport together? Um, how big a driver in this initiative was the notion that it has been put forward by Peter Savile, to whom we're going to speak in a minute, that there is a drain of horses leaving the country? So I think we've, been, we've looked at a huge amount of data and racing is very good at working together when there's a burning platform. Um, I think um, pulling together all the data, you would say, we're not at crisis point, but certainly the warning light you know, the warning lights are flashing. Um, and that is just one of the data points that, that you would you would look at. Um, other jurisdictions would obviously have the um, export of bloodstock as part of their success measures. And the fact that British bloodstock is in, is attractive the world over um, has got to be a successor story. But if the best horses, um, and not staying to race here um, and making sure that our own domestic racing product has got the best bloodstock um, racing against the best, then, then that's a huge risk area for us, isn't it? But can we ever compete with, with prize money, the likes of Australia and Japan? I mean, we're, we're never going to have a, a tote monopoly. We're never going to have a pari-mutual monopoly. So can we ever compete in terms of, of, of prize money? And that's the big reality check, isn't it, Nick, that, you know, um, our, your guests from JRA were talking about how they um, copied and learned from British racing all those decades ago. But they could also learn from our mistakes and keep control of their, their central betting um, revenues because that is obviously the big growth driver for them with with the the, the billions of of turnover that they have there. Um, so the reality check is no, we aren't going to be state funded and we're not going to have a tote monopoly. But a majority of UK K based owners want to see their horses run here, and we have to be proud of the fact that you know the diversity in British racing, the festivals, the fact that we have got those different personalities of our race courses. Owners want to run their horses here, um, and what we need to do is give them a better return on their investment. Julie, when do you think we can expect this this new governance structure to be signed off? 
So the governance structure we've been working on for, for most of, of the year, Nick, and it's, you know, the timing of the two-day meetings is not coincidental. It's because the governance work is nearing its conclusion. So that is going to the BHA board um, early next month um, and that there will be a, a, a race course associ association AGM following on from that. So, so we hope... Are all, are all the major race course groups, they're all signed up to it? They all agree. Arc, the Jockey Club, everyone's everyone's happy with what you've just proposed. The, the chairman of Arc and the chairman of Jockey Club and the chairman of, of the, the ROA, um, the NTF, they, they've been involved in designing um, the, the core principles that this is built on uh, and have been meeting regularly for the last six months. So I hope so by now. And I've asked this to a number of your colleagues, but it is it is fundamental to the future of the sport. Will fewer fixtures and when I say fewer I mean considerably fewer fixtures mean that the sport is stronger in your opinion or not so I, I'm it's not that binary Nick and you know I'm not going to give you the, the politicians answer but the way at the current business model you know Kenichi was talking about their business model the current business model for British racing is every time you cut out a race you will lose revenue so what we need to do is more be more targeted in our approach and cut out the right races so for example having fewer class two races during the summer um is going to lead to a more attractive more compelling races a lot of people have a sort of lazy assumption that this is just taking out a, a certain amount of all-weather racing for low-grade horses um, and actually it isn't as binary as that. Welcome back. I'm delighted to be joined by a man who perhaps you would say for his sins has undertaken the role of president of the ROA from 96 to 98 and then chairman of what was then the British Horse Racing Board, later to become the British Horse Racing Authority from 98 to 2004. What might possess such a person, you might ask yourselves, to re-enter the, the racing political fray? Um, that's my first question to you, Peter Savile. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the, I think this goes back to about three years now where I had a lunch with a lot of the leading trainers uh, in London and we talked about the problems of racing and I threw out a few ideas and they said, well, would you prepare, be prepared to do a bit of work on it? So um, I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And so I sat down with my son, Thomas, who's very involved in racing, loves racing, mm -hmm. and had grown up understanding quite a lot about the politics of racing. And we started to put together some ideas uh, we then came back, I think, in about nine months later and presented those to the group that we'd, we'd formed, which was mainly horsemen. Um, and they wanted us to, to put those ideas to the leading owners or representatives of the leading owners, uh, which we did, I think, in December 2020. Then we decided that we needed to widen the, the, the net and it became obvious to me that we, we needed to involve racecourses as well. So we did a sort of uh, uh, tour of England, visiting all the major racecourses, where we got lots of different views. And I finally came to the conclusion that I had to get everybody in the same room, otherwise we weren't going to make any progress at all. And how did you find that? How did you find the um, spirit in, in the room when you, when you got people all together? 
fantastic. I mean, surprisingly uh, so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we had we 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 put together people who were not actually leaders of the industry in terms of actual positions in official bodies. Ah, so they we, were senior people you would call senior figures. Yeah, there were people influencers and people who had a, a, a big investment in the industry and an in, interest in the industry. Um, but we deliberately didn't have anybody, say, from the BHA or the Levy Board or any of the official groups like the ROA or the RCA. But they were all people who, you know, Ascot, Goodwood, the major race courses, major trainers, representatives of leading owners, um, and a, a few other people as well. We, we've got the betting industry involved, uh, Flutter. Uh, were part of the group, uh, the tote mm -hmm. were part of the group, and we we found that there was a real sort of uh, a similar to what Julie was talking about earlier, a real desire to to understand and accept that the change was needed, and what uh, we gradually got into what those changes should be. I think I think a lot of people from the outside are thinking, hang on a minute, this is exactly what Peter Savile was trying to sort out 20 years ago. Why now? Is there some sort of apparent consensus that things need to change? And more to the point, why is there any likelier to be agreement across the industry now relative to, to all those years ago? Do people not still have the same self-serving set of interests? I think they do to a certain extent, but I think that the issues and the problems have got greater. And I think when you get to the point where you realise that there are some serious problems, that's when people start to say, maybe we actually all ought to get together and see what we can do. So Julie's point about racing is very good when there's a burning platform. She's, yeah, I would you think she's I, right. I, I, yeah, I would agree with that. I also think that, that the, the focus has changed. When I was chairman of, of BHB, um, it was the betting industry that I felt and we all felt needed to pay more. Um, the betting industry now is paying a lot more than it was before, both in terms of levy and particularly in terms of media rights. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's the area that we should be particularly looking to, to, to get more money from. I think we, we've got to do things that mean that they pay more because we do a better job of helping them to, 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 to put on the right races with the right field sizes. But I don't think that the, the growth in terms of revenue is going to come from the betting industry in terms of ratcheting up what they pay, other than possibly a, a, a restructure of the levy. So we've heard quite a lot over the last week about growing the cake as a priority rather than trying to create the correct division of the, of the cake. You know, if yeah. you grow it, it doesn't really matter how you, how you divide it, everyone's happy. So how do we grow it? If we're not growing it by getting <coughs> more money from the betting industry... Well, we get, I think we would get more money from the betting industry if we get our field sizes right because people don't want to bet on four-runner handicaps. They want to bet on decent field sizes, and if you get those right, then you get better, greater betting turnover from the bookmakers. Is so the equation as simple, as, is as straightforward as that? The bigger the field, the more people bet. Absolutely, and, and particularly the, more field, the better field sizes you get at the top end, good racing, because people bet more, and more people bet on good racing, and t in particular televised racing. Mm -hmm. And so we, we actually identified three areas where we felt there was real potential growth in terms of growing the cake. One was t expansion of television, uh, televised, terrestrial televised racing. And that's the, the big opportunity because when, when racing is on television, the betting turnover can be as much as four times what it is when it's not on, on 
terrestrial television. That's, that's so, got to be pretty much at capacity now, hasn't it? I mean, ITV are covering almost one in three racing days, probably more, actually. It's probably up to a sort of one, 110, 120 now. I, th I think on Sat family and Sat network. Saturdays and midweek, definitely. Yeah. Sundays is the big opportunity. And, you know, they, they've, done the, they've done the Sunday series. That's six Sundays. We'd like to see that expand to sort of 20 or even more, if possible. So what you're trying to do is to put the good stuff in racing shop window. It sounds obvious. Yeah but you don't feel that that's necessarily being met as it stands? No, I think, I th I think we all know that Royal Ascot, Goodwood, York, they're all big meetings. But I think to actually brand our premier product, which is wider than that, uh, and to get the, the, the best horses coming together to race against each other, that's something that we can, we can package and brand. In our view, um, with two Saturday meetings, the midweek festivals, and we hope 20 Sundays, all which would be televised, all which would become effectively our premier product. So those Sunday fixtures, they're being taken from elsewhere, presumably. You're not adding more fixtures to an already over-cluttered fixture list. No, I don't believe that we should have more fixtures, but I think that you can cut down on some of the Sunday fixtures. I think the important thing is to have a premier racing, the quality racing on a Sunday, on a Saturday and the big midweek festivals and there's an opportunity there. Ireland, France, other countries race on Sundays, that's when people can go racing and we haven't taken advantage of that. We've had Bouncy Castle Day as Sunday has been so far. Do you think there's an appetite, a cultural appetite amongst the British public and British punter for Sunday racing? I do, yes, absolutely. And what evidence do you have for that? That, well, first of all, that it works in other countries, so why but would that's, it not but work? But it hasn't really worked here, has well, it? We've, we've, never, we've not put on quality racing on a Sunday. Well, the, the, that's the, the few Sundays we've had with quality racing haven't really worked from a public point of view, have they? Or indeed a TV viewing figures point of view. The 1,000 guineas day on a Sunday, that Cheltenham Sunday in November, they don't register nearly or resonate nearly as much as the Saturdays do. They don't. They're not as, as important as the Saturdays, but they can be improved from what they are now, which is very little interest uh, in Sunday racing, mainly because it's not quality racing. So you think it's very simple. You put the good quality stuff on Sunday, people will watch, people will bet. Definitely. It's already shown in the figures from, sun from the Sunday series which is not top quality racing. I mean, it's, it's middle of the road mm -hmm. racing. And the betting turnover figures are way, way in advance of, of what Sunday racing generally is. And how do you make these field sizes stand up? The problem with field sizes, we, we, we believe we don't need to reduce fixtures. The problem is that the field sizes are all out of kilter with what most racing nations um, produce on, uh, in terms of field sizes which is their field sizes are the greatest at the top end because that's where more betting turnover takes place and they're smaller at the bottom end. We've got a complete inverse uh, uh, graph which shows that at the top end our field sizes are the smallest 
and at the bottom end our field sizes are the, the, the highest. But doesn't that accurately reflect the, the quality of the horse population? Because by its very nature you're going to have more horses who are rated 0 to 70 than you are horses that are rated north of 90. Yeah, and therefore you need to put on more races for them. And we haven't been putting on more races for them. We've been putting on too many races at the top end, which has resulted in having too f small field sizes at the top right. end. So you reduce the number of races at the top end in basically the 75 to 100 range and you put on more races down at the 0 to 65, 0 to 70 um, level. And we've, model, we've modelled that so that you do get a, 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 a graph that goes like that. It, it provides more opportunities down at the bottom end where people really, all they want to do is, is win a race. They know they're not going to cover their costs. And at the top end, it, it brings the horses more together to race against each other and they, they can race for more prize money. First of all, because there are fewer races, mm -hmm. so that prize money per race goes up, but also because we need to feed more money into the top end. If, for argument's sake, I mean, the television landscape changes all the time, if network broadcasters don't want to cover horse racing to the same extent that, that you propose or the same extent that they are, they are doing now, does your plan fall apart or does it still stand up? No, you've still got to level up the field sizes, first of all, which will increase betting turnover and, and bring more money into the sport because betting turnover has been re reducing to a large extent, we believe, because of the lack of quality field sizes. Uh, but the um, so, you, so you believe, Peter, that it's more to do with the quality of the, the product, dare I say it, the quality of the sport you're putting on, rather than the sport's own place in the world. Do you think the dimin diminishing interest is more to do with what you're offering people than it is to do with the fact that there are so many other things they're actually more interested in than horse racing? I, th I, I think field sizes are a massive um, factor in whether people go and watch racing, uh, whether it's on television or in the betting shop or whether it's actually live. Uh, I, we know that from field sizes at Plumpton um, where when we have smaller field sizes, our crowd is smaller. Mm. So you need to get that. That's critical, we believe. The other thing that's critical is to actually give a proper reward to the people who, who own horses at the top end. And while everybody, or not everybody, but people say it's elitist and, you know, why are you giving more money to rich people? The point is you've got an asset, and those assets now, if you've got a horse rated 85 to 95, People are being offered a quarter of a million, 200,000 for that horse to go to America or go to Australia. Well, we, we've just been discussing this. I, I, you, we are never going to match the prize money and incentive of Australia, are we, or, or Hong Kong? You, you do, in my view, you don't need to. You, you will never be able to do that. But I think as an owner, if you know that you can cover your costs each year and you've got a, an asset worth 200,000, you will probably keep it to get the enjoyment out of racing it. What, where the problem is, is that you've got an asset worth 200,000, but you, win, you have to win five races to cover your training costs for the year. So you've got an asset worth 200, 250,000, and it's costing you, you're not getting a return on that, you're, it's actually costing you to keep it. So sell it off to America, take that, out and you get to the point where one or two you win one or two races and you've covered your costs people don't mind that uh, that they could sell it for 250,000 because that's not why they bought it in the first place they bought it to race and get the enjoyment out of it